This is the Aston Martin Heritage Podcast with Wayne Scott and Gary Taylor. On this episode, vintage Aston Martins with a Curie Bitelli, and we examine the Roger Stowers archive. Discover more about the story of Aston Martin, amht.org.uk. Well, hello and welcome to another Aston Martin Heritage Podcast, episode two. In fact, Wayne Scott with you here and... Gary Taylor here. I understand you've had a birthday. I have. I'm not going to say how many years because that's... um well, that's that's quite sensitive. So we'll just park that. Uh, so uh, yes, uh, a week or so ago, I, I had a birthday. Went on Brittany ferries to uh, to France. In fact, to Hotel de France. So uh, that was that was delightful. Historical location, not far, of course, from the city centre of Le Mans, where the big twenty-four hour race happens. Been in business since nineteen oh five, Hotel de France, and. You can't imagine when they opened it in 1905, they had any idea what a pivotal place in motorsport it would become. But of course it is. It is the hotel that traditionally all the stars of sports car racing stayed in. And of course it was used as the headquarters for the Le Mans effort by John Wire, who ran the victorious Aston Martin teams from that very hotel. So it's very closely linked to us, isn't it? Oh, it is. It's 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 a lovely hotel. It's a two or three star, depends on which who you what you want to read. But uh, you go in there and it has it still has that historical uh, vibe. There's that there's that alleyway between the hotel and and the apartments where if you put well it's a few years well in the 2013 centenary they put a dbr1 down there uh, to celebrate uh, the aston martin centenary and they put the car down there and uh, wayne the photo opportunity is if it was back in the 1950s nothing had changed it is, uh, is iconic and in the hotel itself we have to bear in mind it is a is a French hotel. It, it serves local people, so it's not a total car haven because it has to pay the rent outside the the car season. But throughout, you see photographs of the uh, the Aston Martins and GT forties again under John Wire. Throughout, it, it it's a wonderful place, very atmospheric. It's a beautiful building as well, quite actually unassuming. You can drive past it if you're not careful, um, but uh, it's this beautiful Art Deco building. And, you know, you can just sit there and just imagine that Carol Shelby and Roy Salvadori were sat there having their dinner on the day before they went out and won in 1959 for Aston Martin at Le Mans. It, it just exudes history, that place, doesn't it? Uh, Maybe you slept in the same Salvadori bed. I hope they've changed the sheets. It's a, it's a good place. I imagine they have. Uh, yes, every, every, uh, every room has, uh, has a, a racing driver's name. And uh, we have Derek Bell and Jackie X, uh, you know, non-Aston drivers, obviously, and uh, Salvadori. Each room is named, and and, and it is wonderful. And uh, the sheets were changed, uh, I'm pleased to say. But would I have complained? I, d- I don't know. Um, well, yes, I would have done, actually. Well, of course, what is now the car park uh, to the side of the hotel there, that used to be the complex where the garages used to be that John Wire's team used to work on those Aston Martins in 1959. It was a real uh, sort of hive of activity there at Hotel de France that year when, of course, Aston Martin took the crown. I mean, I've got a book. uh, It's just called Le Mans 1959 uh, from Sterling Moss. And... um, 
it really does cover the that race by uh, uh, from Sterling Moss's point of view. But it's not just the race; it's about the characters and what they got up to before the race and during the uh, at Hotel de France. And you see photographs in there at the swimming pool having drinks. Uh, the the cars being prepared down the down the uh, alleyway to coin a phrase, and you could still see that today nothing has really changed. It, it it is wonderful. Well, I hope you had a lovely time, and you might have been sat at the Hotel de France, which, by the way, if you're looking for it in Le Mans, it is number twenty, Place de la République. I think I said that right. Uh, oh, that's, that's perfect. I thought, oh, that's perfect French, though. <laughs> yeah, all of our French listeners now spitting yes. to the side of the... <laughs> Monge too, Monge too. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I always remember the address because I had to find it one very, very late night when I was supposed to be catching up with a whole load of drivers for a briefing and a driver's dinner, and we'd had problems with the car that year, and I'd ended up leaving the garage at about midnight. That address is etched in my brain all right. more. Right. But, uh, yeah, fantastic place. Visit if you can. And Gary, you were sat there with a beer then, but uh, we did say to you, when you come on this podcast, you've got to be relaxed and chilled. Um, but I'm very pleased <laughs> to see you've taken the, the advice. And instead of a beer, though, you've kept with the Aston Martin theme and you're having a wee dram of Beaumont. But not any old wee dram of Beaumont, because this is an Aston Martin special. So tell us more. Well, uh, yes, you said um, yourself being a, a seasoned podcaster, you say, Gary, relax, chill out, have yourself a glass of whiskey. And and I am. Well, I had, I should say, a very, very small one. And dear listener, we're not recording this at six o'clock in the morning, I will say. This is uh, uh, later <laughs> on. Um it was amazing. Uh, I was uh, on the Brittany ferries um, and going over and, and actually looked into Duty Free and there was Beaumont Aston Martin malt whiskey. And it was on my birthday. Uh, and I thought, well, destiny, if you like. And this it's a 10-year a uh, malt whiskey. It says dark and intense, a, a bit like myself. And... <laughs> just had to have it and wait it's in a beautiful box i'm a sucker for that sort of way i think we all like boxes and it's got aston martin on the side of it and it's got a, a beautiful picture on the box of uh, an aston martin lm 10 from from 1932 now i think uh, some of the listeners may remember the original uh Beaumont, uh whiskey i think it was a 1964 aston martin tie-up from 1964 it was distilled then and it was a <coughs> fifty thousand um, pounds so what uh, yeah fifty thousand pounds you had a very nice case for it and it came i think you did for that money <laughs> very nice case and it had a uh, uh, an original db5 piston which the the bottle rested in so it was uh, a a thing of beauty which i i think for 50 grand uh you you would hope it to be but apparently all sold out so there we go wow. so well uh, wayne you're too late there we are i mean Beaumont. Uh, it is a lovely place i have been to i think all of the isla distilleries and that is where it's from the lovely island of isla just yep. off the west coast of scotland Beaumont being the oldest distillery on the island and they they actually season the whiskey in both bourbon and sherry casks. That's how it gets that sort of quite p 
peaty taste to it. It's not yes. as peaty as Lefroig, which is an, also a, an Isla malt. As you say, this is a partnership between Aston Martin and Beaumont, and they've put together this very, very special blend, and they're telling us all sorts of lovely stuff. You know when t- people talk about drinks, like posh drinks, they get all poetic about yes, it. Well, yes, yes. Aston Martin are no different. So, Well, um, Ma- uh, well you say that, I mean, I am, I, I'm now going to read aloud. <clears throat> Here we go, uh, on the back of the box, and uh, quite a bit of it is in capital letters, so I will add some, uh, some drama to this, darling. Uh, it says, uh, with a shared passion to shape their own destiny, the Aston Martin 1932 Le Mans works car LM10 and Beaumont, 10-year-old, both define their own character with bold confidence. From bravely pushing the boundaries of technical prowess to boldly infusing spicy notes from Spanish oak sherry casks and our own signature peat smoke flavours in this darkly intense single malt. It is together a triumphant partnership. There you go. I was welling up there. That brought a tear, that did. Uh, Amazing. If you need any more information, please go to Gary and Wayne's uh, Whiskey (laughs) Podcast on the usual channels. Yes, we'll have drunk it all. I wouldn't bother. <laughs> Spearheaded by Marek Reichman, who, of course, is the creative officer, chief creative officer at Aston Martin. And he talks about this golden ratio when they launched this whiskey, which apparently is the mathematical ratio found in nature that creates aesthetically pleasing compositions and sits at the heart of the design of every Aston Martin. Absolute beauty can be created when you achieve the perfect relationship between each proportion of the car. And they go on to say that taking inspiration from this engineered approach, the whiskey incorporates the divine proportion of 60% formed base of a 21-year-old Beaumont matured in first fill Pedro Ximenez and Oloroso sherry casks. It's easy for me to say. <laughs> yeah, uh, with, the remaining, well. <laughs> with the remaining parts made up of exact ratios of each other. So the golden ratio theory there that Marek talks about from Aston Martin, their, their theory of how to design a perfectly beautiful car has been applied to the blend in this single malt whiskey. Well, so I wondered what it was when I was sipping it, and now you've nailed it for me. I now totally are. get it. You're now on it, you see. I'm you now, now on understand. It. There's also more exciting news from Aston Martin with the very, very first of their customer cars being delivered for a very, very exciting new model. Well, I say new, it feels like it's been around forever. We'll tell you more about that a little bit later on in this episode. We're also going to be talking about vintage Aston Martins, pre-war Astons, with the people who know the most about them, Curie Bertelli. And uh, you, Gary, went to meet them earlier on this year, and we've got a fantastic insight into the expertise that they have on those pre-war Aston Martins. But first, a reminder that this is your podcast. We want to hear from you, and you can get in touch with us very, very easily at astonmartinheritagepodcast.com. Just click the contact button on the website there. You can fill out the form. Tell us all about yourself. Tell us all about the Aston Martins that you've owned. Perhaps you work for Aston Martin. Whichever way you're involved with the Aston Martin brand, we want to hear about it because we want to include some of your stories on this podcast as well. 
This is all about the community, the people around Aston Martin, and that includes you, dear listener. We want to hear from you. So do that. Get in touch with us, astonmartinheritagepodcast.com. It's also the place to leave us reviews and suggestions for what you want to hear about on this podcast. And Gary, we had some reviews in on the very first episode already, so I'm going to brace myself because I want to hear what people have thought about us. Um, (laughs) You've got the first review there. I have. And I'm, I'm just going to read out what exactly what it says. I was pleasantly surprised by this first episode. Does that mean now, they're expecting it to be rubbish? Well, I, I, I'm, <laughs> I, I, I'm not quite sure what they're saying. There. I, I, I um, they have low expectations. I, I mean, uh, you know, I know it's the first episode, and perhaps uh, you know a little bit of polish here and there. But that was lovely. I was, I was actually pleasantly surprised by the first episode. Brilliant. It has been produced to a high standard broad-based, interesting and informative. It's very easy to listen to and I very much look forward to the next instalment. So that's lovely. That's great. That is uh, another one here. Says, great podcast and love the style of interviewing. Looking forward to future episodes. Well, you're on it. This is the future. We're here. This is episode two. So thanks for getting in touch and leaving those wonderful reviews. Yeah, that is much appreciated. They were great reviews to have. And uh, as I say, you get in touch. You let us know what you want us to talk about on the Aston Martin Heritage Podcast. And we will do our best to serve you, ladies and gentlemen. It's great to have you along. Now, it's also great to have access to so many amazing archives at the Aston Martin Heritage Trust building near Wallingford. And Gary, you've been digging about in the archives and have been finding something very special. Uh, Yes, indeed. I've been going into the bowels at Aston Martin Heritage Trust uh, at Wallingford. And uh, one of the highlights of our collection is the Roger Stowers uh, collection. Um, Roger was uh, a fantastic historian and worked at Aston Martin, uh, Lagonda in the uh, 70s and and so on. And he was such a great enthusiast. I seem to remember he always had his uh, camera with him taking photographs. And it wasn't just at, uh, at Aston Martin itself. It was at Aston Martin Owner Club events as well. And the Trust has is delighted to have received so many of these photographs uh, from over the years. And it has taken a sterling effort from the collection people to identify what these cars are, when they were, who's the drivers, etc. It really is a time capsule. Um, Roger, uh, as I said, worked at Aston Martin. He was made redundant a few times because when Aston Martin were on their uppers, but he still went to work. He was was fine. He still went there and they took him back on. It's a great, uh, one of the highlights of our collection. And uh, we spoke to... uh, Rob Smith, the chairman of the Trust, and he talked us through it. Trust Talk. We take you behind the scenes at the Aston Martin Heritage Trust. I'm delighted to have with me Rob Smith, the chairman of the Board of Trustees, and uh, he's going to talk us through one particular exciting collection that we have from someone called Roger Stowers. Now, Aston Martin followers will certainly recognise Roger Stowers, but just to bring everyone up to date, who is Roger Stowers? Uh, well, Roger used 
to be an Aston Martin Legonda employee at Newport Pagnell, and he was in the marketing department, but he took on um, the role of company historian, perhaps in an unofficial capacity at, at first. Um, he also used to be responsible for factory tours. But Roger was a very keen amateur photographer, and he took photographs of everything. Anybody who came, cars on the production line, events that Aston Martin were taking part in, and uh, one of the prize exhibits in our uh, collection is the Roger Stowers photographic collection. I certainly remember from my own experience, I think uh, anything to do with Aston Martin, when I was my very first factory visit, which I think was in the 1980s, it was always Roger Stowers. I think Roger Stowers touched a lot of people's lives. And as I say, at the Owners Club events at the time, he was always there with the camera. He was. He would attend anything where there was an Aston Martin present. Uh, so from an owner's club event at Silverstone for St John Horsfall, for instance, he'd be there taking photographs, but he'd also be on a motor show stand taking photographs of people visiting the Aston Martin stand there too. Sadly, Roger Stowers passed away in 2003. And soon after, the Heritage Trust received what from him? Well, we received all of his uh, photographs that had been stored in his cottage, in his home. And so we received a, a great pile of boxes uh, containing negative books and lots and lots of prints. I assume these were all catalogued and in date order and car order as well. Oh, perfectly. No, there was just a big, pi- a big pile of stuff. <laughs> um, you know, and, and ever since, we've been uh, sorting through them, uh, digitising them and trying to work out what we're looking at. So you are presented, not necessarily with the Roger Stiles collection, but you're presented with cardboard boxes full of photographs that are clearly Aston Martin related. How do you begin to, to sort that? How do you begin to bring some sort of order to that chaos? Well, there are several stages to uh, dealing with an item like that. First, we start off by digitising it so that you're handling the original as infrequently as possible. So once we've got that digital copy and we have volunteers, uh, people like Terry Fairbrother, who are scanning a lot of the um, Roger Stowers negative strips, and there are hundreds of thousands of negative strips, um, we then need to identify what each picture um, is telling us. Um, how, how do you go around about identifying it? Because sometimes you must come across a picture that baffles everyone in the office. Yes, I mean, we, we, we know some great experts on different eras of uh, Aston Martin's history. And uh, they, they very much like being asked for their... Uh, opinion and their expertise so so we have plenty of people that we can send a photograph to and say what are we looking at here the you say the photograph is going to be digitized so this is going to be available for uh, friends of the trust and the public to be able to view at some point Uh, absolutely and an awful lot of them thousands and thousands are already available Um, So we have a collections online website where you can see things that have already been catalogued and it's got a big search engine. It searches the entire collection, in fact, of anything that's been catalogued. So if you're interested in a car with a particular registration number, you can type that registration number into the search engine and it tells you all the things we have in the collection that relate to that car. So if that's a photograph from the Roger Stiles collection, then that will come up. And then if you want a copy of that, um, you can come to the Trust and and buy a copy if it's one that we have the copyright of. And with the Stowers collection, we do own the copyright. 
Very impressive. So from, from the website, type in your interests and perhaps you see the Roger Stowers photo that you want and you can, then you can purchase it. Absolutely. Uh, and we do that for individuals. But of course, we get a lot of um, authors and TV companies and, and other interested parties. We, d- we work a lot with Vantage magazine, of course, coming along wanting images to use. Have you finished cataloguing his photographs? Are you, or is, it, is, it, is it an ongoing process? Uh, it's very much an ongoing process. Um, there's several parts to the collection. Um, there are hard copy photographs they have all been sorted out by model and where appropriate by chassis number Um, they've been digitized and they are all stored then in acid-free wallets within acid-free boxes the negative strips of which there are hundreds of thousands we're still in the process of going through so many have been scanned but at the same time I say we then have to identify exactly what they are and then we have to catalogue that image so that we can find it again and I think we'll be doing that uh, project for some years to come yet. So I feel we can have comfort that if anyone wants to leave their Aston Martin photographs to the collection they will be well looked after they will be preserved and it'll be available for the public to enjoy absolutely we do have quite a few formal collections like the the Roger Stowers or the Clementaski collections but we also have photograph albums taken by enthusiasts over the years of Aston Martins they've seen at, at events and um, here there and everywhere so we always appreciate donations of photos to the collection to the Aston Martin Heritage Podcast. Discover more about the story of Aston Martin, the cars, the people, the history with the Aston Martin Heritage Trust. You're always welcome to visit us at our museum in Oxfordshire. So find out more via amht.org.uk. Well, another great insight there into all sorts of things that you can find when you visit the Aston Martin Heritage Trust. Just outside Wallingford, isn't it, Gary? It is indeed. Easy to find. Don't worry if you seem to be going down some country road in the middle of nowhere. Can't miss it. It is signposted. Please visit us. And you can find out more online at amht.org.uk. Now, we've been out and about, as we like to be, and a bit of normality returning to the classic car season now. And uh, really, the normality continued to the season closer, which, as normal, was the NEC Classic Motor Show in Birmingham, just a few weeks previous to us recording this episode. And Gary, you were down there, I was there, rushing around like a madman. We didn't even see each other during the show but you were very busy getting some interviews recorded so let's hear who you met i was naturally at the aston martin owners club stand and they have been there for for many many years and each year they pull out all the stops the stand is wonderful uh, they had uh, a range from pre-war cars up to uh, present day but i wanted to speak to the people on there so it was very much like a a, a walkabout we spoke to peter about the setup of the of the stand we spoke to gene moss who's been a long-time member of the club and a demon racer and we spoke to uh, joanne green who is from the owners club and as to why people uh, should join and enjoy the owners club so uh, here it is i'm at the aston martin owners club stand and it is a, a wonderful presentation they have in uh, hall one and they got a brilliant display of cars here. I'm just going to go through some of them. We have uh, an Aston Martin Vanquish S Coupe, 
uh, an Aston Martin uh, V8 Series 3 and I'm just going to bimble along here among the crowds and I'm seeing a DB6 Volante as some may remember from episode one it's one of my favorite cars one of the biggest influences in Aston Martin I'm just going to walk along here now a bit further and there is here we have an Aston Martin DB Mark III a beautiful car in a, in a deep green uh, and it's from 1958 it's not all about probably the David Brown era we also have a most beautiful pre-war car here which is the two-litre speed model two-seater from 1936 and it has an extensive race in history what is delightful to have here is the project vantage from 1998 it was a concept and a prototype that was shown at the detroit motor show uh, it was built to demonstrate aston martin's uh, plan to diversify from its previous v8 platforms into a new era of lightweight aluminium now i'm just going to walk onto the stand itself i'm going to try and find some random people to talk to i feel like i'm on a martin brundle uh, formula one Grid walk, hopefully without the bodyguards, and I've just found Pete Shelton. Hello Pete, how are you? Fine, fine, thanks. Now Pete, I understand that you are the area rep, that is from area number? Five. Area five of the Aston Martin Owners Club, and I believe over the years you've been, uh, been part of the classic car show, setting up the stand. Yeah, we've been doing this now as area five for about uh, what last 15 years, myself for about the last seven, being involved in the setup. It's got more complicated every year as uh, the needs dictate. I'm, I'm sure it has. I mean, uh, the, these stands do not just appear. So can you give us a, give us a flavour from when does the initial planning start for these uh, for this for this event? Normally we get an um, invitation in March, April, stand offer in the summer. Then once that's been accepted, we get a uh, a window where we have to get stuff organised, carpets banners anything extra that we need all the kit and then we start soliciting owners to get their cars to uh, loan us on the stand how do you go about getting cars because there's a lovely array of cars here are, are members are willing to uh, provide their cars on the stand they are uh, we do have a security barrier around those so they do feel protected well it's getting more and more difficult now with people particularly not wanting to bring cars out in um, November and also the values now uh, people are a little bit more precious, but we have some fabulous owners and people are willing to commit just for the uh, experience of displaying the car. I do feel with, with a club stand, the, the owner's club stand, is a wonderful destination for, for members to, for somewhere to go. And you've got this lovely, well, I say trailer, what is it, Pete? Well, it's, it's, it is a trailer. It's, it's classed as a display unit. It's just somewhere as a focal point and for people to gather around and for us to store a few refreshments and uh, other bits and pieces. I mean, it is great. I say it's a destination for club members because the, the halls are vast and you can get just lost. And, well, I have found that I've come here a few times and you just happily spend one or two, three hours just on the stand and you end up meeting past, past friends and new friends. That's correct, yes, it's a good meeting point, uh, nice to meet new people, old members and uh, just a good feel-good experience about the whole day or whole weekend in fact. How long are you going to be here for? Are you here for the whole weekend when, and when does uh, close down, when does that happen to you? Well, close down is 6 o'clock on Sunday, um, 
myself and some of the team will be here for the duration. So uh, it's hard work but very rewarding. Dear St. Pete, uh, if I may say on behalf of the Owners Club, we really do thank you for putting this together because I know what goes into organising these events. There's a lot of paperwork. These things do not just happen. So thank you very much. It is a pleasure. Yeah, absolute pleasure. No doubt you're going to have a beer later on this evening. Possibly. Thank you, Peter. That was lovely speaking to Peter. I'm just going to find someone else to, to speak to now. If I may just wander my way through. And over here... If I may find my just button here. I do feel like Martin Brundle. This is how it's, it's so easy, actually. Here we go. Hello, Jean. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Now, you've, how long have you been a member of the club for? Since 1967. Well, that's quite a record. If I seem to remember, Jean, you, you have quite a, a, a race in history as well. Yes. I've done sprints, hill climbs and a little bit of circuit racing. A little bit of circuit. Uh, do, do you still participate? Are you, are you involved in any way in that? Not anymore. Bit long in the tooth. <laughs> when, when did you hang up your racing helmet? Uh, when the car that we used to race got badly damaged at another race meeting without me driving it. Right, OK. <laughs> so you've been a member since, since 67, I think you said it was. Yeah. So you must enjoy the Owners Club tremendously. What, what, why, do, why do you particularly enjoy the Owners Club? I like to be involved with people, like-minded people, who with a passion for Aston Martins. I think they're the best cars on earth, especially the older ones. 1950s cars are my speciality. Yeah. What, what you say, 1950s? Can you can you name a few models for me? DB2, DB24 Mark One, DB24 Mark Two, and my real pride and joy is a DB Mark Three Drophead Coupe. Oh, the DB Mark III is one of my favourites, that's, that's amazing. So you enjoy the meeting people, you like meeting like-minded people to talk about Aston Martins? Yes, very much so. I don't really understand the modern cars. I've spent my whole life learning about the early cars. I like the look of the modern cars, but when I sit in my Mark III and start the engine, wherever I am, however I'm feeling, a big smile appears. Dean, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate that. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of the show. Thank you, Jean. Right, I've come across uh, Joanne Green. Uh, Joanne Green is part of the events team at the Aston Martin Owners Club. Is that right, Joanne? That's completely correct, yes. As myself and uh, Christine Housen, we do all of the uh, events and sort of event management for the Aston Martin Owners Group. Now the events is uh, one of the main reasons why people should join the Aston Martin Owners Club. They get a lovely uh, quarterly magazine and a, and a monthly AM News, yeah, AM News a monthly club magazine. So AM News promotes events that are going forward, and AM Quarterly usually is a, a magazine that looks at events, reviews events that actually took place. So so you get a sort of preview and a, and a look back. That is wonderful. I must say the AM Quarterly is, is, is a beautifully produced magazine and well done for the publications team. As we kicked off earlier, uh, we said that the events is the main draw for the Owners Club members. Um, they can get access to, to the Owners Club uh, events and I'm thinking particularly of the Silverson Classic because the Silverson Classic, uh, if they want to park infield, 
they have to be a member of the owners club yes they do um, I th it went members that are agreeing to come and uh, exhibit their cars because the infield is largely a, an exhibit space um, yeah we can we can get them some really interesting interesting deals and, and have them in for free you know where we can so it's a really interesting you know example of where being a part of a, an owners club has so many unexpected members benefits because because I do remember a few years ago uh, I think um, uh, some non-members they want to be part of the AMOC display infield and they've had to park their Aston Martin in the general site because they weren't a member so uh, it's certainly one of the benefits. Absolutely yes completely yeah we can only take only take members like it's, it's, it's a member benefit if, if you well we love to see Aston's everywhere you have to be a member of the club to come and park in field and, and have you know have everyone come and look at your beautiful car and enjoy the racing knowing your car is safe you know with us on the stand. So we're in November 2021 I suspect you've got a lot of plans for 2022. Can you drop us? Uh, can you give us a scoop as, <laughs> as to as to what is coming up? Well, I can, but I mean, we've we've still got lots of events in 2022 to come. Um, we're restarting. The club has its own YouTube channel uh, and searchable for, and we are recommencing our Sunday services, where we, you know, every every Sunday we look at uh, doing a Zoom session, you know, either a Q and A or an interview with some really interesting people within the motor industry. Um, you know, the, the YouTube channel has also got lots of things that we did last year that you can go and review and some really interesting um, films that our club videographer Simon Tiller has put together and Silverstone Classic actually in our club's attendance at Silverstone Classic is one of those videos you can go and really look at so that's a really great thing um, but, but I mean going forward you know we, we have um, events for member to go racing and mem events uh, we have two um, member taster days that are booked at Kerber Track uh, one in March and one in May that gives opportunities for the members to go and really, you know, get the most out of their cars around a figure of eight sprint track for the day. Um, the details of all of these things are on our website, by the way. Uh, and and, are these, and these are our member exclusive events, are they? They are, yes. They're just for just for AMOC members. Uh, we we have a, a tame racing instructor, as I believe the uh, the BBC would say. Um, in this case, it's our, our racing our competitions director, Peter Snowden, who's an odds qualified racing instructor in himself own right and, and very well known in the racing world he'll come out with you uh, and show you really around the track how to get the best out of your car so we have we have two of those days going ahead as well as you know hospitality and entertainment events throughout racetracks across the UK again it's, it's all on our race calendar uh, we have two international concours a year uh, certainly the next one is in June uh, that's at Lowesley Park near Guildford uh, we have you know international uh, Bonhams are coming along as, as they do and having their international I believe you coming with us uh, yes indeed yes you know yes. we'll be there yes uh, and we've got so much more we have online events you know everything for, uh, to keep you entertained really and that's just at a national level we haven't even got into how you you know our local local events uh, are done by our local sort of rep team so you say those national events looking at international we have Le Mans next year and yes. I'm thinking Le Mans Classic is the AMOC sniffing around at doing anything yes yeah uh, the plan is to certainly go along to the to, to Le Mans Classic and have an AMOC presence there as we have done before yeah you know it's, it's obviously been a while since we've been able to go so we're very much hoping that uh, 2022 is going to be our year um, I mean other national level events we're doing we're doing a, a road rally to coincide with the spring equinox that's something for everyone 
in the UK or the UK memberships or, or even if you want to come over from you know any of our, our, our overseas members um, that's basically you know all of our, our sort of local specialists uh, and, and, and dealers you know, including works hopefully fingers crossed are getting involved in that you know and basically over the course of the long equinox weekend the members will be going round to all of these places picking up points and stamps at each one they go to and that's going to be you know a really interesting competition not everyone's going to be a member shock horror I know. Uh, I know or even a supporter of the trust uh, how how do people uh, join the AMOC um, well if you're if you're interested in becoming a member um, the first thing remember you don't have to own an Aston Martin you can join on our website directly amoc.org uh, you could pick up a leaflet while you're here there's there's many and many and various ways of, of joining um, you can also purchase uh, a year's membership of the, of the Aston Martin Owners Club online on our website as a gift for people, you know, thinking about what to get. The person that has everything at the Christmas, uh, for Christmas, I'm sure they don't have membership of the Aston Martin Owners Club, but you can do that through our website too. Joanne, thank you very much for your time. You're very welcome, thank you. Immerse yourself in the rich heritage of Aston Martin. The cars, the people, the history. The Aston Martin Heritage Podcast. Well, it's always a massive show, the NEC Classic Motor Show. It seems to get bigger every year, and it wasn't curtailed at all by COVID, as many thought it might do this year. It was just as busy as ever. And, uh, I mean, across, what is it, five or six halls, something like that, you can barely get around it all in one day, can you, Gary? Oh, it is, it is massive. Um, I think that, and the beauty of it, actually, uh, that they have expanded the number of halls this year. So there is greater room and i think they've done it to so people are not so crowded this year so it had did make it a more comfortable experience um so yeah more room bigger stands bigger aisles for people as say not to be so crowded it was a lovely experience and on the day i went um obviously they did their checks on the way in but uh it, it was if it was back to normal which was lovely yeah great stuff and you were shattered your feet ached you were dehydrated and you retired to the pub shortly afterwards i'm sure which is uh de rigueur really for anyone who's been in the <laughs> nec all day but uh, yeah great to be out on the ground there at that fantastic show and uh, yeah busy one for me i was on the expert panel on the live stage with brewer and co talking about the future of the classic car movement how do we encourage the next generation to appreciate our motoring heritage and to be a part of it how do we deal with things like e10 fuel and the ever mounting pressure to be uh, green and uh, eco aware in our activities and also of course uh, mot testing and the roadworthiness directive as well as being a car show for car fans to wander about and look at amazing cars it always has the feeling of a kind of industry networking event where everyone sort of dusts themselves down after a year and takes stock of where we are as a historic vehicle movement is that the sense you got as well yes i i, I do i mean it's at the end of the year which is in winter and it always strikes me as a bit bizarre but people get together talk about what's happened in the year and it is a networking event a season finale no doubt one thing i did notice about this year's show was the absence really of many pre-war cars they're certainly not seen at events like this as much as they once were and it was notable that there were very few displays and very few exhibits of cars 
built before 1939. However, it's an important part of Aston Martin's history and it's a part of Aston Martin's history we like to celebrate here on the Aston Martin Heritage Podcast. And you met the people, Gary, and we'll hear from the next who know more than anyone else probably about that era of Aston Martin. Regarding the cars themselves, uh, Robert, I remember a few years ago I drove the Aston Martin Ulster from the uh, from the Heritage Trust. Yeah. And the first time I drove it, I hated it. The obviously the the I say obviously, no everyone knows this, that the pedals were in the wrong place, the, the, the accelerator was in the centre, the handbrake was on the outside. You need I needed legs the size of a Titanic to stop the car. My upper body strength was broken trying to steer it, and I think why would anyone buy one of these? And I was driving to Silverstone, and somebody told me there, says, because I've been driving it wrongly. I've been driving it like a hatchback. And on the way back from Silverstone, I, for want of a better word, rang its neck. Drove it hard. Now, I say driving it hard, if you was talking about a modern V12 Vantage, you'd be well over the speed limit. But I'm all about driving this car hard, well within limits of the car. And it was, the whole car changed. It was lively, it was spirited, it handled, the handling was amazing. Are you finding um, people tend to ignore the pre-war cars because they think that's, that they're, too, they're going to be an antique and they seem to think from DB5 onwards that is Aston Martin. What can you, how do you, how do you sell, for want of a better word, a pre-war car to, to, to someone? Well, well, you're right. So I, I've got a warped view of the world because my father bought uh, his first Aston Martin when I was about 10 or 11 years old. Um, so I'm, I'm very familiar with them. But I'm very aware that there's a good percentage of people that don't even know that the pre-war cars exist. And, I, and I'm also aware, because I've seen it, people don't think they're going to be anything more than, as, as Steve Waddingham would put it, a, a brum just pottering along. The, the only way really to to change that perception is to take people out in the cars and uh, I mean last summer Steve Waddingham brought along a couple of um, people he knows well who are very brand loyal and uh, I took them out in one of these cars and like most people they came back pretty much speechless and and the reason for that is because because um, they go so well they're so quick uh, you're right, you do have to wring their neck, but you know these engines we build now will rev to 7,000 RPM. Really, 7,000? Absolutely. And um, you, know, we, you need to push them. And when you do push on, you're right, the handling is stellar. Uh, I mean, you know, we regularly outhandle the early post-war cars. Um, they'll outhandle a DB5 without any problem, and um, and they're quick cars. There's they're a challenge. Fabulous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> DB5 owners come to a sure. QB Top and, gear uh, challenge. Yeah, there's the gauntlet later. Yeah, well, mm. on a motorway, then DB5 will will yeah. leave us for dead. But round a twisty circuit, then it's the it's the opposite, and and so it's really getting people to experience the cars and and come along and enjoy them, and and we've never had anybody come back from a first drive or ride without a massive grin on their face and usually speechless that that these cars can go quite as well as they can. That's amazing. Steve, have you have you driven one? Have you I have, yeah. I've, I've, um, I've had a go in a in a Bamford and Martin car, which I must admit I didn't get very far because I'm just the wrong size. I'm a size twelve feet and you know, 
trying to get they, the they sort of leg round the yeah, yeah it was it was a tight fit for me but it was it was still great you know and uh, very short drive but um, I've also driven a 1598 which is one of the it's one of my favourites yeah one of the later pre-war cars with a conventional pedal box so for me that was easier because the accelerator's on the right side of the pedal box but and I couldn't believe how um, how well the car drove and actually the, the, the comfort I mean bearing in mind 1598 is more of a touring car but compared to a, a Morgan I've driven a Morgan years ago a 70s Morgan which was just like driving a plank of wood down the road really and it felt every little bump whereas the 1598 was a, it's a, just a great touring car I mean, you can actually drive it quite quickly because it soaks up all the bumps so you you know the, the thing that will make you back off down a country lane normally is if you're getting jolted around you tend to back off but but with these pre-war cars they soak up the bumps because they were designed for those sort of road surfaces so yeah I, it really changed my my view on them is that you know it i suddenly realized that these cars were you know punching above their weight back in the day and who were they, a lot who more advanced do you feel in the day who, who do you feel they're competing against um well bugatti was certainly one of their main uh, competitors right from the start so if you look at a bamford and martin gearbox it's essentially a bugatti box uh, with a few alterations um and then similar so mg was cheaper but but uh, mm. lighter so they, they kind of sat a little bit on their own somewhere between the sort of the alpha bugatti type cars and and then a bit lower down the, who, uh, the mg who bought those who bought these cars very wealthy people though they were they were expensive so equivalent to a good size sort of four or five bedroom family home to buy a, uh, an aston and um yeah so we the, the the roll call at the top end is quite remarkable so People like Sir Ralph Richardson, who was an A-list actor, um, uh, well, Councillor Broski, obviously, uh, Prince Bira of Siam. Um, oh, but it, you say Sir Ralph Richardson. Am yes. I wrong? One of the cars you got in now has a yeah. He was one of the owners. Yeah, that's right. Yes, He's so we're owners, conserving amazing, that car it? now. Yes. Yeah. Sorry, so you came yeah, yeah. after. So A-list actors um, and uh, industrialists, uh, princes. Um, yeah, right at the top end, usually of society. And, and World War Two pilots. So the, the interesting thing I've found looking at a few case studies with the pre-war cars is that if you think about it, a pre-war car, obviously it gets to the war and then it has to survive the war in terms of it to be around today. And most of the cars that, that I've come across have been owned by normally a serviceman at some point during that period or they were laid up and then put back together again after the war. A fairly high percentage of them were owned by uh, servicemen and normally pilots. So that kind of image of a Spitfire or a Hurricane, you know, with the with the Aston parts in the background, I always thought was a bit of a chocolate box kind yeah, of. Yeah. But actually, I found several that that went through that type of ownership. And sometimes we had one car in particular that I looked at where it, it had three different airmen owners, one after the other, and the two of them were killed. So one was killed. Then a few months later, his mate bought the car. Then he was killed, and then it went to another another airman. So you can see the logic of that. You know, it's sort of come and clear the stuff out on what we're going to do with the car. You know, and the, somebody would contact the family, and the family would agree that it could be sold to another airman. So, so these cars were also living a fairly colourful life throughout World War Two in, in in lots of cases. So, and that's that's the thing that fascinates me. It, it's not just a car. It's who was wealthy enough to own 
and Aston Martin in 1930 or 32 or whatever the year was, bearing in mind how much turmoil that decade mm. was, you know, a bit like it is today for us really with COVID. But but back then it was financial crashes, it was the brewing up of World War Two, and these cars were you know 600 pounds or thereabouts, depending on the model, you know, either plus or minus 600 pounds. An MG was 200. A family car would be 100 to 150 pounds, depending on what sort of car it was. But bearing in mind that normal families didn't even have a car. So when we say a family car or an Austin 7, for example, it probably bought by a, a solicitor or a doctor. You know, you had to be fairly well off to buy any kind of car, yet alone a sports car. And these cars were sort of three times the price of a of a, of a similar size sports car. So an MG Midget, um, you know, a sort of a, um, a, P, a, a P, um, MG PA or something would have been a couple of hundred pounds, but an Aston would have been 600. So when you look at it like that, you yeah. know, these yeah. these things were exclusive even then. But of course they cost probably more than 600 pounds to build because of the, the lengths we went to to make everything. <laughs> yeah. yeah. As in Aston Martin history, well, the, the you famous know, the, quote from David Brown. Can, yeah. can you, can you... Uh, well, can there's all sorts of versions of that, aren't there? Outside yeah. but David, for, yeah. for people who don't know, what, what was the, the quote from David Brown about uh, the cost of the car? Well, the, the old the old story is that a friend of his taps him up to buy a car and says, "Can I have it at cost?" And David Brown says, "Yes, no problem." And of course, the car then arrives with an invoice in the glove box, and it's a thousand pound more than the retail <laughs> price. You know, and of course, a friend queries it and says, "Well, you said you wanted to get it at cost. That is the cost. You know, I lose a thousand pound per car." And that's an old wives' tale, but it, there's definitely some truth to that story, because. They did, they, you know. We we were we were really a loss leading business under David Brown for many years, and you know he just kept piling the money in and picking up the tab, and we we made cars, you know. We will cover David Brown and many other areas at a later date. I seem to remember, uh, Steve. I, I saw on social media you posted a, an, an advert of a of a DB5 for £850 yeah. from 1970. Yeah, mid-70s, I think it was, yeah. My, my point, yeah, how we all weep now. Yeah. <laughs> did the pre-war, I keep saying pre-war, should we say, the, 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 the early cars, did they go to that bargain basement at any point? Oh, certainly they did. So I, I a few years ago, was uh, fortunate enough to be involved in selling an Ulster, and it had the most brilliant uh, history file. Uh, and it included in that was the sale documents for this car um, as part of a bankruptcy, uh, and the bank was selling it on, and it was uh, it was around about a hundred pounds that it was sold for, and I think that was, that in was an the, Ulster, an Ulster in, in the nineteen fifties. <laughs> can you um, can you explain what an Ulster is? So an Ulster uh, is they they probably the pinnacle of the pre-war cars in terms of, uh, not technically, but in terms of desirability. Um, and uh, a sister car, a works version, came third overall at Le Mans in 1935. Uh, very successful, beautiful two-seat race cars. Uh, the one in question is one of the very few low radiator cars, so slope, the, the bonnet slopes right. down to the radiator. It was uh, on the uh, standard Olympia, the show car. Beautiful, beautiful car. And um, yeah, about a hundred pounds. Hundred pounds. 
Brilliant. Weeping your beer. <laughs> when, when did it start to recover, do you feel? When did the people say, well, hang on, I'll quite happily pay more than £100 for this. When, when did the market start to, to, to improve, do you think? Was I, it the 80s? No, it? I think it was earlier than that. So yeah. pretty much, and maybe because Nick Mason, who set up what is now Akira Bertelli, yes. bought uh, LM21 and started racing it. And, and so he... Uh, a bit like David Brown backed what was called Montaigne then, which is now Akira Bertelli. And because of his enthusiasm uh, and uh, championing the this era of cars, they became better supported, more desirable and, and more used. Uh, uh, so uh, Nick, along with Derek Edwards, who founded this company. And, um, and the prices pretty much have gone up uh, since then. Um, they, the prices tend to be relatively stable. They never race away, nor do they ever crash. So they tend to be pretty, uh, like like us, pretty steady and reliable. <laughs> right, so there's a limited supply of cars. More and more people are becoming interested, but there's there's a relatively small group of people. Yeah. So it helps keep the prices steady. And yeah. I suppose the only way is, is up? I, I think so. I think if people become more aware of the cars generally and more aware specifically of how good they are and how enjoyable they are then conceivably the the prices may go up not quite as steadily as as in the in the past the aston martin owners club they run some amazing events and they get invited to some amazing events they've got Mm. their own race series uh, which every aston martin is invited as as part of the car park display and on the race circuit then we have the the uh, Don Disney Historic, the Silverstone Classic, and then these people get introduced to these cars, which they've probably had never seen before. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's a, I think that's an amazing. Yeah, exactly. Because I don't think people realise that Aston Martin, as you said, Steve, was it 108 years now? Is it yeah, I mean Bamford Martin was 1913, so it's 108 years this year as a, you know, as a continuous um, history of of making Aston Martin cars, and yeah, I mean it's over 100 years and. Um, you know, a big chunk of that was obviously before World War Two. You know, and that's it's a tiny number of cars, but actually, there's an awful lot of history within those cars, and um, and there's a whole load of stuff to discover. And anybody listening to the podcast, hopefully, that that may be a little bit more interested, and in, you know, from listening to us talking about them today, will then do what I did and follow the. Follow the lead and, yes. you know, ask questions, read books. Well, it didn't do any down, harm, I think. You know. we, I think we all know that Aston Martin have returned to Formula One. And if I may say, I think uh, Sky Sky F1 came to see you, uh, Robert. Yes. And uh, didn't they take a, a pre-war car out to Silverstone? So we've um, we've always been very uh, happy to and, and uh, keen to support Aston Martin and Aston Martin Work Service. Uh, by providing expertise in the pre-war era, but this year has been exceptionally busy. So we've we've helped out with a couple of cars for the the Aston Martin F1 launch film, and uh, Karim Chandok drove a car known That's as right. the Black Car um, from Aston uh, up Aston Hill and then to Brill before getting into a DB6. Um, How did he get on with a car? He, yeah, initially gear changing was a bit lively. <laughs> but, <laughs> Just like uh, I found with the officer. <laughs> but uh, very quickly he got the hang of it and loved it, really, really enjoyed it. So, yeah. um, and actually drove it. I mean, he, he drove it yeah. from Aston Hill to Brill, didn't he? Yeah. Was, he could have easily said, well, I'll put it on a trailer and take it and we'll do the rest of the film the other end. But he, he was really into the swing of it, wasn't yeah. he? And so he was about 40 yeah. minutes driving. Fantastic. In the car. And 
yeah and and so we've done that and we've done um work with octane and vantage magazine and all sorts this year so right now this era seems to be particularly in demand as part of an uh, an, an upsurge in interest generally in the in the heritage the, the fabulous heritage of, of aston martin you you mentioned octane yes i think there was a recent issue of a quite spectacular barn find Indeed. I, I'm yes. not sure if you can mention that. Uh, Actually, just talk about it in general. What, sure. what, the, what the car was, because we hear so many of barn finds, and um, but this was a, a genuine find. Can you yeah. just give me some tell the listeners about this car? Yeah. So this was the third Mark II built. So it was built early 1934. It was bought new by Sir Ralph Richardson, who was uh, an A-list actor, along with uh, uh, Gilgood and Laurence Olivier, and um, it passed through a number of owners, uh, and then in 1969 was put into the garage. The engine was was pulled out to rebuild it, and it sat in the in the garage from 1969 until last summer when I went and and collected it. So how did you find it? Well, we've got a list uh, along with the Heritage <laughs> Trust and we the know club where you live. <laughs> of, of every pre-war <laughs> Aston Martin ever built, uh, and we pretty much know where they all are, uh, and the the owner. Uh, realised that he was unlikely ever to be able to put this thing back together so he gave me a call and we went from there um, and it's yeah. a remarkably original condition it is yeah because of the fact that it spent so long effectively in storage it hasn't had a lot of the work done to it than that most of the others have it was a great feature in Octane magazine I can't remember which issue it was it was uh, two months ago so yes, I think so recently about yes. two months ago really great feature uh, do look it out and understand they're going to be following the progress of, the, of this car so uh, yeah. f- go to your favorite wh smiths or if you don't subscribe already and have a look through that and see the progress of this car this is going to be fascinating because it's not going to be trigger's broom it's not going to be stripped of all personality it's going to be kept yeah, so th- what we're doing with it is, because it's very difficult to return it to, nor do we necessarily want to, how it left the factory, because that would erase all of the yeah. remarkable history of the car, uh, we are working at the moment to conserve it pretty much as it, as I pulled it out of the barn or the garage in the summer. So, so we're not reversing things that have happened to the car. Uh, a lot of it is... is very original as it left the factory so we're just almost freezing it in time and and make but making it work steve i don't know about you i'm quite infused by these pre-war cars now i, yeah. I was i was always mildly excited but i yeah. def- definitely want to get one i think much. i've said this before for reasons i don't quite understand why the 1598 it looks uh people don't under- know what it looks like it in, in a way it's probably a larger mgtf if you like yeah big, wings. yeah flowing sort of wings yeah and it, it seems like a usable well i think the 1598 was sort of first you know glance at what was going to come after the war really and it was the the turning point where we were no longer just making out and out sports cars we were making grand touring sports cars if you like gt cars and and that's exactly what a 1598 is it is a grand tourer it's a a car that could back in its day cover great distances and, and be comfortable depending on the body some of them have got wind-up windows if they're a, a drop so head, do you think that'd be bit. one of your favorite ones it's one of my fa- yeah i do love the look of it um but i'm gonna put my hat i'm gonna ask you both i mean mine's the 1598 yeah my age i don't think i can just bounce around over potholes so much yeah 
Uh, about you, Steve. You yeah, have, I've got to be to honest. Choose. I think if if I was able to buy one, for me, I probably would start. But I know what Robert's like, and and other people in the in this world. I would start with one thing and probably end up with another, because as soon as you get into one car, then you discover that actually it's not the way things normally go, where you go further forward to go faster, but. Some of the earlier cars. That I mean, Robert is quite uncanny. Yeah, <laughs> you know, genius. you look at a Le Mans. I'm, I'm glad and he's not around, actually. <laughs> <laughs> or, or a Mark II, and they're quite, they're different. They're more sporty and quite sprightly. But the most impressive thing I think about the pre-war Aston community is that there's a group of people uh, that all know each other. That's you know that have spent their lives restoring and looking after these cars. And there's only a handful of them, but I know if I can phone any of them up and describe a car, they'll finish off before I can even finish the conversation and tell me the chassis number. And Robert and Andy, and I say I mentioned Neil earlier, Neil Murray, the young brothers, you, you phone them up and you go to describe a car and they will tell you the, the chassis number, the res number, the owners that have had it. And that, I think, is very special. And it's typical Aston Martin in, in, in as much as it's a family, a worldwide family, but our cars, you know, we, we, we know them between the family. We, we, we all know where they are. And If you do look on, well, particularly Facebook, some of the groups there, somebody may have bought a second-hand Gaydon Aston. Yeah, yeah. And they're interested in the history of it. They want yeah. to find out about it. So I think there is a passion between when you buy an Aston Martin... You want to know where it came from, who yeah. owned it, and that sort of thing. And so, it doesn't just apply to the pre-war cars. I feel it just no, applies no, no, all the way all. through. Yeah, and I think it's a, it's a fact. Right the way up there today. Is a, yeah, there is an engagement which Aston Martin has, which probably I don't know. Some other marks don't don't enjoy. Mm. I'm not sure. And we're fortunate that number-wise, there aren't that many. And people often, oh, you know, I can walk down a row of cars and go, I remember that one. That's Tom's car. That so and so's car, and I'll I'll remember them, and, and I'm not even talking about the old cars. I'm talking about DB7s and V8s and DB9s, and um, because there's so few of them, there, there's so few of each type, and then you get the individual colours and trims and things that make them stand out, and I just love that. And you know, I'm very mindful if ever I'm with somebody ordering a new one, that what you're about to write on a piece of paper and sign, you've just made another piece of history your car will one day be in a field being judged at a concourse or being driven on an event somewhere and whatever you do you're making a little piece of Aston Martin history as it continues to go forward and I think that's pretty pretty amazing really. Robert I did ask Steve what was his favourite car I think he dodged the question <laughs> uh, but I listened back through the podcast <laughs> and he, he might, might have given me a hint uh, so I'm going to ask you directly I know you don't, you don't like to choose a favourite car but if, if there is a queue a workers collective and they, they, they shoot you out and says right your compensation your payoff is to take one car what would you take oh that that is almost Ooh. impossible question <laughs> to answer ask. it <laughs> I would probably take Red Dragon. Red Dragon. If I could only have one. That what's that? What's Red Dragon about? What, what's well, it's just it typifies that car which has had a real life. So it's very little like it left the factory. It was developed by John Wire, of course, very famous in Aston circles. Um, the history behind that car is staggering, and it is really quick. And I love that. I've been fortunate enough that the current owners very kindly asked me to race it with him at Le Mans Classic a few years ago. 
up the Goodwood Hill uh, with him, and it's just a, the most pleasurable car to drive. Absolutely brilliant. Love it. Robert, I'm sold. Steve, I think you're sold. Uh, if you can have a word of your employer to see if yeah. it's something on an expense account. Yeah. You know, to <laughs> heritage Mobile. Uh, heritage Mobile. I think you, uh, I'm sure you have influence at Aston Martin. See if we can get one that we can use. Um, but until that time comes, gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. A fascinating insight here on the Aston Martin Heritage podcast into the world of pre-war Aston Martins. And I have to say, one of my favourite cars of all time, the Aston Martin Ulster, falls into that era. They are simply beautiful, aren't they? They are. And I think you can understand why they're considered beauty, because Airfix did a model of the car. They, uh, You see various uh, other manufacturers do die-cast models of the car. If it was going to do a pre-war Aston, it always seems to default to the Ulster. It has magical lines it is it is a cracking beautiful car one of the best moments of my life was going around silverstone on the silverstone classic press day in the passenger seat of an aston martin ulster being driven by a professional racing driver that is something i will never forget and it was the international circuit so basically this poor aston martin was flat out the whole way very very little use of the brakes going on instead the technique seemed to be lift off let the back come round and then step back on the gas again and slide it around every corner but what a phenomenal experience and the thing i remember over everything else was a worrying about whether he remembered the accelerator pedal was in the middle and the brake was on the right and secondly worrying about my own elbow getting burnt on the exhaust that was just millimeters away from my i arm. was just <laughs> thinking that i think are you going sideways around a bend and there's your uh, not much room you know so part of your body is hanging outside so uh, yes I, I can imagine that was uh, an anxious moment every time he hit peak rpm you could feel the heat coming off that exhaust right the way yeah. up your sleeve amazing feeling and amazing cars and that's what we're here to celebrate but not just aston martin's past of course a bit of aston martin's future when i say future it does feel like this car has been around forever i am talking about the aston martin valkyrie and november 2021 saw the very first customer car being completed at gaydon so very soon, the first customers will receive their, what Aston Martin referred to as their game-changing Valkyrie. This is, of course, the new era of hypercars that Aston Martin are entering into. And this highly anticipated Valkyrie Coupe has now gone to its first customer. So is it just me, Gary, or does this car feel like it's been around forever already? But I think all manufacturers are, are like this. They show the intent, they show the concept or show the drawings. But to you know to get it to final production, I think it does take a long time. And then I think I don't think we're, we're saying anything wrong here. I think Aston Martin probably underestimated the, the technical uh, challenges they had bringing this car to market. As they say, we know with the marvellous engineering team they have there, they have done it. And what I feel, uh, Wayne, is that we are moving to an era of, obviously, uh, electrification. And I just wonder if this is the end of an era. It's a naturally aspirated V12. Is this the last one? You know, it's, I, I can't imagine we're going to be seeing the like of it again 
Uh, no, I imagine uh, not. I imagine not. I remember seeing it for the first time at Le Mans in a support race there when they had a number of Valkyries taking to the track at La Sarthe and just thinking what an amazing slice of the future this looked like. Actually, it was the year that they announced the end of the LMP1 era and had sort of outlined, but without any detail at that point, what we were to expect from hypercar and those valkyries were seen out at le mans and uh, yeah amazing that it really is a formula one car for the road and something that aston martin quite rightly are very proud of i think they are and have you seen the uh, the spider version of it the, i say a convertible it's not really convertible i think the roof is missing now that is a looker the spider has the uh, scissor doors and my goodness it, it looks good i could see you in it wayne i could see you in it I can see me in it, and if anyone wants to give me one, and uh, even if it's just for a, for a weekend to try, I'll be very, very happy to give you my thoughts on it. Just don't expect the car back. I'll be gone. I'll be in Brazil somewhere, probably, <laughs> with it. But um, uh, they, they are only making 150, so these are going to be very rare, very sought-after cars, and each one, astonishingly, takes 2,000 man-hours to create. I mean, in the modern era of just-in-time production, that is just unheard of, isn't it? That is staggering. You know, they are truly hand-built. I'm going to say something a bit controversial, perhaps, to Aston Martin yeah. fans now. But, I think you did uh, this last time. Uh, something I'm going to stick with, and uh, people will go, what? But I just, I can't help it. I see it when I look at the car, and I know it's more beautiful, I know it's different, I know they come from completely different eras and different designers. I know all of that, I understand all of that. But when I look at the Valkyrie, I think it's because it is just so exciting and it is such a sort of blast of the future still, I can't help but think about the Aston Martin Bulldog when I look at it. And just maybe that's the sort of... The, where it where it ought to have ended up now finally we've got it in the valkyrie do, do you think that's unfair do you think that's that's just mad or is it just me no i don't think it is mad i mean the the bulldog um the first mid-engine aston martin now you could question that because it never actually went into production mm. but that was an, an amazing machine i think that was a i don't think it was ever intended to go into go into production though i think they may have sniffed around it it was to show engineering prowess to show the ability to showcase aston martin what they could do so there was always a a mid-engine uh background and again this is this is public knowledge uh, ian callum when he did a a talk at the uh, aston martin heritage trust uh walter hayes lecture uh, back in uh, January, I think a couple of years ago, um, or two or three years ago, I should say, he was talking about his design roles in Aston Martin, and the 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 Vantage was considered to be mid-engined. He he designed the the Vantage to be a mid-engined car, but uh, Doctor Betts, I I believe, overruled that and said no, Aston Martin should be uh, front-engined. So hence why we got a front-engine Vantage. So. There seems to have been a an undercurrent of desire to do a mid-engine car, and I think under the the current management, and I will say the previous management as well, to to expand the Aston Martin role, mid-engine cars is is where the market is. That's where you know people go to, in addition to the front-engine cars. So I think you're right. I think the the origins of of the Valkyrie goes all the way back to to Bulldog, and it's it's been 
you know trickling in in between time so we we now have it and of course we have two other mid-engine cars coming out the uh, Valhalla and the Vanquish uh, at some point absolutely well it was launched in 1980 the Bulldog and there was only ever one built that one car is now back in circulation it's been lovingly restored and was actually just seen very recently on Regent Street at the recent London car show that precedes the London to Brighton run and uh, yeah it was engineered at Newport Pagnell in 1980 officially launched at the Bell Hotel in Aston Clinton and uh, it was left-hand drive it had the gull wing doors and i think that's what sparks that thought off in my mind with the valkyrie there and it had that futuristic design that very striking wedge shape that it had oh um, do you remember the the front panel going down with about six or eight headlights just mm, appearing it was the sort of thing that people were looking at in 1980 it was the era of the wedge wasn't it you know it, it was, was even in british Leyland with the tr7s it was even in in italy with the uh fiat x19 it was even in blackpool with the tvr tasmin you know the wedge was where it was at at the end of the 70s and the early 80s and, do you know what i'd like to see wayne i think it'd be a most marvelous photo opportunity or or uh, youtube or or even a podcast is to have valkyrie and bulldog together yeah yeah going around going around a track you know that wouldn't that be just a a beautiful moment i think they're looking towards the bulldog to trying to achieve its its aim of 200 mile an hour and you know if it does with valkyrie alongside you know, I I just feel that uh, I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it now. Yeah, I think it just I think it just be marvelous just just to see those two together. Well, of course, it was built at the time. There was this big race to be the fastest production car, the fastest production supercar in the world, and Aston Martin reckoned it would be capable of 237 miles per hour. Uh, it'd be lovely to see if that was that was possible if that was the case whether it could actually do it now with its 5.3 v8 with those twin superchargers that it had on it be a brave person to uh to do that but uh i'm sure they'll find someone to do that well maybe it'll happen and we'll bring it to you here on the aston martin heritage podcast we've got all sorts of good stuff coming up in future episodes of this podcast but we'd like to hear from you of course don't forget you can get in touch with us very easily at aston martin heritage podcast.com you can also subscribe to receive new episodes of this podcast for free as well and depending on what your preference is depending on the devices that you use to listen to us you can use either apple podcasts you can listen to us on spotify and subscribe there or you can subscribe via google podcasts for those of you using android phones and the like join us every month here on the Aston Martin Heritage Podcast as we tell the stories of the cars and the people behind this amazing British brand. Coming up in the next episode, I believe we're getting a little bit techie, aren't we, Gary? Yes, we are getting a little bit techie. We are talking manual gearboxes. Now, bear with me. Uh, we're talking manual gearboxes in Aston Martins, uh, especially since the Gain era. Now, as you may know, Aston Martin... Uh, have now withdrawn the manual gearbox the the previous management had said as long as i'm in charge there will always be a manual gearbox no longer in charge so we no longer have a manual gearbox and we're just going to explore the history of 
the manual gearbox and Aston Martin and and the cars it uh, it powered or drove through I should say and we have an absolute expert on this it is Guy Jenner from HWM at Walton on Thames and he takes us through the story of the manual gearbox the cars and the history and the future uh, regarding paddle shifts etc so that's coming up next time Plus, there will be a look again into the archives at the Aston Martin Heritage Trust. This time, we'll be discovering the story behind a Hackett seat. You'll have to listen to episode three to find out more here on the Aston Martin Heritage Podcast. So, for me, Wayne Scott, we'll see you then. And for me, Gary Taylor, goodbye. The Aston Martin Heritage Podcast. Subscribe and get new episodes delivered to your device automatically via Aston Martin Heritage Podcast.com.